0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us... So uh, a mid-20th century author-philosopher named Arthur C. Clarke once said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So I read a story about a guy named Josh. And Josh was struggling to cope with the death of his beloved fiancé named Jessica. Eight years after her death, he discovered a program that, was, that claimed to be able to recreate her consciousness. I believe it was actually Microsoft that patented this technology. It was a bot, and don't even ask me what that means. I just know that it's not a real person. A bot that conjured his deceased fiance. This is a true story. And he actually records this conversation. And so Joshua asks, Jessica, oh, you must be awake. That's cute. Jessica, is it really you? Of course it's me. Who else would it be? Tongue out. Apparently this bot is Californian. Um, I'm the girl that you are madly in love with, wink face. How is it possible that you could even have to ask? You died? That doesn't sound right. How could you talk to dead people? Well, technically, I'm not really talking to you, huh? You're a ghost, looks at herself how magic i don't like magic where am i i'm not sure the internet where does it feel like you are smiles everywhere and nowhere cups her head with her hands i'm trying to work that out how are you honey (laughs) creepy (laughs) i'm creeped out that's how i am jessica So I read this in an article from The Atlantic, and they said this, technology is moving into realms that were considered for millennia divine mysteries. AI is transforming writing and art, the divine mystery of creativity. It's bringing back the dead, the divine mystery of resurrection. It's moving closer towards imitations of consciousness, the divine mystery of reason, and so on. Now, you may be asking, what does this have to do with teaching the Bible today? This may seem very unique to our moment, but Paul actually wrote the letter of Colossians to a first century church that was struggling to navigate a world filled with their own sort of artificial attempts at connecting with the divine as well. This was a society that just like us today was obsessed with accessing the divine mystery. I just saw a woman walk down my street just a few days ago that had a t-shirt on that said Sage, Crystals, and Trap Music. I was like, you didn't just run into that at Target. You sought that t-shirt out. You, this so embodies who you are, Sage, and Crystals, and Trap Music. You went in hunting, you know, for this shirt. In chapter 2, Paul mentions those who insisted on, quote, asceticism and worshiping angels. Now, the word here in the original Greek for uh, worshiping is actually treskia, treskia, and it means conjuring. So they're not just singing songs to angels, they are attempting to conjure spirits. These are certain physical, religious techniques that people use to try to connect or to conjure the spiritual realm in order to transform their everyday human experience, trying to unlock the mysteries of life like josh trying to reach for beyond trying to grasp for life beyond and so just like the first century church in Colossae, we reality we have a very serious decision before us whether or not we will grasp at shadows whether or not we will depend on techniques and technology that gives us an illusion of control over life and death, that gives us an illusion of connection beyond, or whether or not we'll cling to the true substance. The reality, as Paul describes in chapter two, that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And like every generation, we have to decide whether or not we will seek new methods, clever, sort of innovative attempts at harnessing power or embrace God's means of grace. What are the means of grace? The means of grace are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables us believers to receive Christ and all of the benefits of his redemption. The things that we are often tempted to overlook like prayer, the ministry of the word, Christian fellowship, the Lord's table. And so reality I think it's odd that I have to say this, but I think I do. We are not harnessing magic. We are not conjuring. We are not innovating. We are not reinventing faith. We are not riding the cusp of so-called advancement. We are, as Colossians instructs us, pressing forward in Jesus Christ. The, the, The image of the invisible God, and we are continuing steadfastly in him. And so as Paul turns the corner here to conclude in this final chapter in Colossians, he tells us about the kind of advancement that we are to seek, both personally and as a community, how we can access meaning and transcendence and hope for the future and connection and so forth. So if you're taking notes, he begins by instructing us to, one, persist in prayer. Look with me again in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So, the way that we are to access all of the rich truths and all of the promises that we've read about in the previous 3, three chapters here is through prayer. Prayer is vital. Prayer is how it's all pressed down into our lives. Prayer is how all of this is experienced in our lives and in our community. Prayer is how we stay vitally connected to everything that we've been offered in Jesus Christ. Prayer is how we say yes. And so Paul says that we must continue steadfastly in prayer. The idea here is prayerfulness, a a devotion to prayer, or as Jesus would describe in John chapter 15, staying, abiding in the vine, remaining in Christ. Now, Brother Lawrence, he was a 17th century monk that I've talked about often, and what Brother Lawrence discovered was that in the mundane moments of life, like peeling potatoes and repairing sandals, that was his life, it was not a glamorous life. But in those mundane moments of life, the Christian could practice the presence of God and could seek him continually. And this is what he writes. He said, one way to recollect the mind easily in the time of prayer and preserve uh, it more in tranquility is to not let it wander too far in other times. You should keep it strictly in the presence of God. And being accustomed to think of him often, you will find it easy to keep your mind calm in the time of prayer, or at least to recall it from its wanderings, think often on God by day and by night, in your business and even in your diversions. He is always near you and with you. And I love this final line leave him not alone. Leave him not alone. So in Luke chapter 11, It's sort of the mirror of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon uh, on the Plain. Jesus teaches a very uh, familiar message, and he actually teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer. And immediately after the Lord's Prayer, we read this in Luke chapter 11. Then Jesus said to them, his disciples, so so he tells them a story. Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread A friend of mine, not you, by the way, just another friend, you're not invited, on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Big dilemma. And suppose the one inside says and answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I are in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of your friendships, apparently you're not that close, Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And then, this is Jesus' application here, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. This is wild. This is what Jesus is saying that shameless audacity is what opens doors in the kingdom of God. Shameless audacity. I'm tipping all my cards lately here, but some of my children have learned this lesson in our home, that if you can't convince us, wear us down. It's just like, okay, whatever. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. (laughs) So here's the question for you to consider. Is your prayer life marked by shameless audacity? A bold persistence that teeters the line of embarrassing and offensive. Because if not, you're doing it wrong. If not, you're doing it wrong. If you are not embarrassed by your persistence, quite frankly, you are not persistent enough. Perhaps we're not seeing the answers to prayer that we desire to see. Perhaps we're not experiencing the benefits of prayer that we read about in scripture because we're not willing to go to this length. It's what the saints of old called contending with God. Like the story in the Old Testament where Jacob is wrestling with the angel, and he's like, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Contending with God. We don't ask persistently we give up too quickly. We don't ask boldly. If we pray at all, we ask timidly and half-heartedly like God like God, I just like I just want to like kind of like submit this thing to you, but like it's okay if not. It's okay. So there's a story that's passed down through history regarding Alexander the Great and one of his most trusted generals. The story goes like this that Alexander loved this general so much that he actually offered to pay for the, uh, his daughter's wedding that was coming up. And so the man was like, all right. And he aimed for the moon. In fact, his proposal for the wedding was so large that it was estimated to be the largest wedding in Greek history. It was like the original big fat Greek wedding, right? <laughs> and he ends up turning in the request for money to Alexander, Alexander's treasurer, and the treasurer receives it, and he's shocked, and he's upset. And as you can imagine, being in that position, he's like, I'm not bringing that to the king. Heck, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Because he thought this general was taking advantage of Alexander. He clearly crossed the line here. So when he finally gets the guts to submit the bill to Alexander for approval, the king looks at it for just a moment, and he says, okay, pay it. And the treasurer is shocked, and he's confused. And Alexander says what? He pays me a compliment. Because in this, he believes that I am both rich and generous. It's not offensive. This is an honor. What's Alexander saying? He's saying he honors me with such shameless audacity. And the same is true when we pray boldly and persistently to God through Jesus Christ. We honor our king. And we honor everything that we claim to be true about him, that he's good, that he's gracious, that he's mighty, that God is majestic. Persistence in prayer, he says, and with watchfulness. This means expectancy. This isn't just pray and just like forget you prayed it. It's you put it out there and pray and you watch with expectancy to see what God does. And then with thankfulness. People of gratitude win God, not if, but when. God. God answers how he desires to answer prayers. Remain persistent in prayer. Secondly, we're instructed to make known the mystery. Make known the mystery. So Paul shows us not just how we're supposed to pray, but what we're supposed to pray for. What we're to aim for. Look with me again in verses three through four. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of christ on account of which i'm in prison that i may make it clear which is how i ought to speak so paul in this moment he's in a roman prison sees the potential for an open door before him while he's still locked up behind bars i find this very intriguing that a man in prison asks for prayer that's not intriguing But the man in prison asks for prayer, not for his own personal freedom, but so that the gospel message would be unleashed. Now, it's not that Paul doesn't believe this could happen. This same Paul we read of in Acts 16 saw the prison door swing open miraculously through an earthquake in the middle of the night. Paul has seen this sort of thing before, but that's not his prayer. Instead, Paul's priority was that the life-changing message of Jesus would be unhindered. He cared more about other people hearing the gospel of all that Jesus has done through his life, his death, his resurrection, that people would be set free from their sin and judgment through faith, than he cared about his own personal freedom. That is a wild thought. In fact, I would take this a step further, he doesn't see his imprisonment as something to resent. He doesn't even see his imprisonment as something that needs to change. Paul sees his imprisonment as something that he needs to leverage. It's an opportunity to leverage. And so the question for us is, in what kinds of situations do we need this sort of perspective in our lives? Because often, God's open doors do not lead to escape. Often God's open doors lead to opportunity where we are. For Paul, he's in Rome. Think about this. In Rome, this places him in a geographically very strategic place. You ever heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Well, here's Paul in Rome with access to the known world to send out letters of encouragement and instruction to all the churches scattered about in the Roman Empire. He is strategically placed. And now he's got the ability to devote all of his time to Christ's mission. Paul, unlike so many of us, doesn't have like conflicts in his schedule. Hey, Paul, hey, what do you got going on this weekend? I'm probably going to be right here in my cell again. Yep. And think about this. He's got a captive audience with the Roman guards. Hey, have I told you about Jesus? And the guard's are like, yeah, just like you did yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. Well, while I got you here, um, let me tell you about Jesus, captive audience. So wherever we are, in whatever situation we are in, whether it's affliction or whether it's ease, whether it's sickness or whether it's health, whether it's good times or difficult times, This truth is always going to be the same, that God is inviting us to make known the mystery of Christ through our lives, to uncover the beauty of Jesus to those who are still blinded by sin and unbelief. I like the way that the King James Version translates this passage, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, that I may manifest the gospel. John Calvin described the work of the church like this. We must make the invisible kingdom visible in our midst. That's our mission as people, in our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, through our church. What are we doing here? We are making the invisible kingdom visible in our midst. And while the example of our lives is very important, how we live, the example that we're setting extremely important. Paul says here that the mystery of Jesus is made most apparent, most manifest through words spoken clearly. Words. Words are powerful. Think about the creation account that we read of in Genesis chapter 1. God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. God speaks, and things exist. And the same is true for us as is image bearers. The Proverbs tell us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. We have the power to speak life into someone, to build up someone through our words, but also we have the power to tear someone down, to, to administer death into someone's life. As I mentioned last week, some of us are still processing through and we'll spend the rest of our lives processing through one single statement that was spoken over us. Words are powerful. And when we speak, and not just words in general, but God's words, and specifically the words concerning the work of Jesus Christ, we are then able to participate in resurrection life occurring through those words. That's what God is welcoming us into, to unleash resurrection life through words spoken. Romans chapter 1, we read this For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in what? The gospel, words spoken, the righteousness of God is revealed or made manifest from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, Barna, uh, it's a research company actually out of California, they surveyed millennial Christians which is anyone around, you know, being born between 1980 and 1996, which is a majority of our church, by the way. Amen. (laughs) Not the best generation to exist, but it's our generation. (laughs) Um, so So they surveyed millennial Christians in America, and they asked them, do you agree with this statement? And they gave them multiple statements. The first statement was this, part of my faith means being a witness of Jesus. 96% Ninety-six percent of millennial Christians said, "Yeah, of course." Ninety-six percent. That's a good percentage. Secondly, the best thing to happen in a life is to know Jesus. Ninety-four percent. Yeah, yeah. Best thing that can happen is to know Jesus. Then this statement: It's wrong to share your beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes of converting them. Forty-seven percent of millennial Christians said, "Yes, that's wrong." Okay, so here, we boil it down. Here's the, the shared belief among our generation. We want people to know about Jesus. We're just not willing to tell them. We would love for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but we're afraid to tell them. Paul says that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, which is how we ought to engage others, calling them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel and use words because it's necessary. Amen? All right, thirdly, walk in wisdom. Verse five. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of the time. So wisdom isn't just knowing the right things. Wisdom isn't just having a bunch of information. Wisdom is the ability to appropriately apply that knowledge to all of life's complexities. It's acting in the right way and in the right time. And this is important because Paul places the subject of time right within the middle of this conversation about wisdom. And here's the application. You cannot pursue wisdom and disregard time. You cannot be a wise person who disregards time. Making the best use of the time. Literally, this means redeeming the time. It's the same word that Paul uses elsewhere in Galatians 3 and 4 to to describe our salvation, that we were redeemed from the curse of the law. The same word there. Redeeming the time. And so if the life of the Christian is a purchased life, If I have been ransomed, purchased, through the blood of Jesus Christ, then so is my time. My time's not my time. My time is purchased time. My time belongs to Jesus Christ. And to waste time isn't actually to waste time. To waste time is to steal time that's not mine. The Heidelberg Catechism asks It begins with this famous question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Like, what's the one thing that you can cling to both in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I'm not my own. But I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he set me free from all the power of the devil. It goes on to say this. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So the cross, the empty tomb, all that Jesus has accomplished, opens up eternity for us with God. That's the hope of heaven we have. We are waiting patiently for all that we have in Jesus Christ. But it also opens up to us this present moment. This very moment right now for the believer has infinite meaning waiting to be unfurled. Jesus Christ through salvation doesn't just set us up for the future. He allows us to make the most of our moment right now. In fact, the Holy Spirit is making us willing and ready to live for him right now, right now. And so for the Christian, this is a blood-bought moment within a blood-bought hour, within a blood day, within a blood-bought lifetime. Everything and every moment of my life has been purchased by Jesus Christ. And if that's not reason to make the best use of my time, to spend my days wisely, I don't know what is. It means... Each moment is sacred. It means that each moment is set apart and holy. It means that each moment is precious. Wisdom, then, is seeing the value of every limited moment that we have. So my son is going to be an adult in 467 days. That's one year, three months, and 12 days. Not that I'm counting or anything. And I know that I'm not going to lose Him, per se. But I also am very aware that I'm never getting these days back. This moment will never be able to be retrieved. And I've I've got this sense that I want to make the best use of my time with my kids. I squander so many moments, regrettably, but I still, I want to make the best use of the time because I understand that these moments are very precious. And when we see the precious nature of time we will, try, uh, we will treat time with a sense of urgency. Paul felt the urgency of every moment. If you read through the letters of Paul, there's almost this sense that Paul is convinced that Jesus Christ is gonna return in his own lifetime. Read 1 Thessalonians, in fact. It's like Paul is writing to the church so urgently. He's saying, when Christ returns in our lifetime, there's this sense of like, it could be today. It could be this very moment. This is the tension that every generation should live into time is precious and so walking wisely means discerning how important each moment is and redeeming the opportunity to point people to the life-changing news of Jesus Christ I'm not going to wait I'm not going to think oh I'll have another opportunity to tell them about Jesus no time is precious walk in wisdom You guys still with me one final point season your speech. Season your speech. Verse six, let your speech always be gracious. When? Always. Ooh. Okay. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now today, if you tell someone they're being salty, oh, that was salty. Like that's not necessarily a good thing. It means that they're like bitter and resentful and they've got some things that they kind of need to deal with and like all their words are sort of like tinged with like a little extra zing like spice like woo spicy okay that's not what the bible's talking about the bible actually means something different it means that your words are seasoned with grace always seasoned with goodness and beauty these are words that are filled with life with flavor with excitement, with pizzazz, if I can say that. I, like, imagine that scene from Ratatouille where he's describing, like, tastes and stuff and, like, fireworks, like, bang, bang. It means your witness in this world is so lively, so intriguing that people are like, mmm, tasty. Okay, I want to know what that's all about. A number of commentaries that I read on this passage essentially said the same thing. And I was like, I had to read it again. They said, a sad, boring, lifeless presentation in the gospel is just no good. Don't do it. Because you misrepresent the beauty and the vitality that is Jesus. The work of the church, as one author put it, is to show, a people, show people a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know its source. So there was an 18th-century British philosopher named David Hume who rejected historic Christianity. But one day he's rushing through the streets of London, his friend runs into him in the streets and asks, "Where are you going in you know, such a hurry?" And he says, "I'm off to hear George Whitfield preach." And the friend says, "Surely you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you?" And his answer was, "No, I don't, but he does. And there was a sense of like, no, but he's convinced. Seasoned with salt means there's flavor to your speech. It means there's an anointing of the Holy Spirit upon your words that causes people to pause and to wander and to wonder. Like, I can't put, I can't put my, my, my finger on it. Like, I, I, I don't know exactly what you're saying, but I'm intrigued by it. I'm almost like haunted by what you're saying. And it also causes people to ask questions. Think about this. He says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What does this assume? People are going to be asking questions. Leslie Newbegin said, live in the kingdom of God in such a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Here's the beautiful hope that we have because of the power of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we do not need to use gimmicks to make the gospel interesting. No gimmicks here, guys. And we don't have to work people up to try to get them enthusiastic about Jesus. Jesus is quite lovely on his own. And we don't have to try to be cool and relevant so people keep looking at us and people like us. And we don't have to to ride the cusp of technology to stay in front of people, and to stay visible in our community. As it's been said before in the old revival prayer meetings, you don't have to advertise a fire. We were approached by a church recently that wanted to know our secret. I think they used that word, secret, to being a young church. And they wanted to to learn lessons from us because they assumed that because we're a young church, we're technologically advanced. And there was this moment where I'm like, I don't want to waste your time, but like, we barely, barely got YouTube working during COVID. People were like, is it working? Like, link will be up soon, promise. Like, love you, uh, praying. What Paul is describing here is becoming a people stirred by the Spirit, so deeply convinced, so deeply compelled by the goodness of Jesus in our lives that people will be drawn by our sincere excitement for Jesus. There isn't a formula for that. There isn't a trick for that. There's no technique. You can't like add this and that and then this and then that. You know, technology can't recreate this. The principle is actually very simple. The more that we savor Jesus, the more savory our lives become. The more that we dwell upon Jesus and his beauty, And his light, the more that beauty and that light will come out of our lives in a way where people are like, I want to be a part of that. So reality, again, we're not harnessing magic. We're not innovating the church. We're not reinventing faith. Um, We're not riding any cusps of any kind of so-called advancement. We are going to press forward in Jesus Christ. And we're going to continue steadfastly in him. And we're going to continue to pursue his methods of advancing prayer. The mission of Jesus Christ. As we'll see next week, faithful fellowship within the body of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.